Courtney Ellis was a graduate student um, who was uh, getting a master's in English, English literature. And she tells this story about, uh, well, let's just listen to the story. She talked about attending graduate school. And she said, I had many occasions in which my fellow students openly ridiculed the name of Christ. Yet to my great detriment, I stayed silent. I was terrified of what might happen to my reputation if the people at my school found out that I believed in Jesus. The fact of the matter is most were ignorant about who Jesus is. And several had never even met a Christian before and they just assumed that all Christians were the uneducated, judgmental stereotypes that are often depicted in the media. Courtney says, and she confessed, but I was still afraid. But as the semester went on, I began to feel guiltier and guiltier for these silences. If I couldn't be obedient to Christ in such a central thing, how was I going to be able to serve him in other ways? Yet despite my silence, God was faithful. God kept sending open door opportunities to speak up for Christ. And then it happened. Totally unexpected, point blank. One day, a fellow student asked me flat out, right before class and right in front of the other students, are you a Christian? It was decision time. I took a deep breath, and with God's help, I said, yes, I am. I am a Christian. The fellow student looked at me for a second skeptically, and then she said this. Interesting. I always thought that Christians were like circus freaks. But you're actually kind of smart. <laughs> Courtney, Courtney confessed, it was a small step. But even the smallest step made in obedience is progress. God tells us not to fear for our reputations because the truth will always win out. That's a good word, and it's a good reminder. And many of you could stand up here now and kind of rehearse the same type of story because you, like Corey, live and work in um, a spiritually hostile environment. You live and work with people who, who have stereotypes about the way Christians are. And, and some of those, quite frankly, are you know, earned and some of those are undeserved. But tomorrow morning, when you leave your home and you close the door to your house, you're going to be entering another door. And you're going to be entering a door of, of, a, of a harsh environment and, and where you are you know, living for Christ and you are to the best of God's strength in you trying to be Jesus to, to really honor people, difficult people. And you've been doing this for a long time, and it just doesn't feel like much progress is being made. 
And then you hear stories from other believers that are, that are good to hear, and it's good to be encouraged by these stories, but they're stories nonetheless, you know, about other believers who seem to be, you know, you know, having a, 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 you know, a, a windfall harvest of fruit and spiritual influence and people being affected uh, 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 by their faith in Christ. And, and, and you're, you're just, you know, and it's easy to play the comparison game, isn't it? You know, if, if, if I could, you know, if I could only, uh, you know, if I could only be like them, but you know, but, but you're not like them. God has placed you where you are right now and he hasn't promised you anything but his presence. That's all, you, that's, that's it. That's all you get. And you're just gonna have to depend on him. See? I mean, does anybody in here identify with what I'm saying? It's hard for me to identify with what I'm saying because I do not work in a spiritually harsh environment. <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah. It is not the first time that I'm not, I'm not able to identify with things that I say. That happens a lot in my home, but that's another sermon. <laughs> that's the marriage series that I'm preparing for later on <laughs> to me. <laughs> if you want to come and overhear that, that's fine. Anyway, what I'm telling you is that being a Christian and, and expressing the love of Christ takes the power of Christ and you know that. And if you can identify with Courtney's story or just the, the difficulty of having to serve and work and live and, in a spiritually difficult climate, then I, I think, I hope that you're going to be assured and I hope you're going to be encouraged by what we look at today in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Revelation and we're just living in this book here in uh, really the first half of 09. And, and I, I, hope that, I hope that you're seeing that, you know, this, this book is food for your soul. This, this is the only book in the New Testament that promises the reader and the hearer a blessing if you'll get it and apply it to your life. Don't, don't, not, not that the other books won't bless your life, but this book specifically promises, I mean, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. So this book was written to be heard, and it was written to be understood, and yeah, you know, there's, there's a little more unpacking to do because there's a lot of symbolic language as we've learned and as we'll learn today. So often people look at the book of Revelation and all they're thinking about is, okay, well, uh, you know, when's Jesus coming back? When's, when's Jesus coming? When's the plane going to land? When's the arrival going to happen? When's Armageddon going to happen? What's the day? What's the hour? You know, I think we've already discussed this, have we not? I mean, uh, I mean God's answer is not telling. Okay? Deal with it. I'm not telling. All right? I'm not going to tell you. So, so, so now what? What? What, what now? What now is, how am I going to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven while I'm on earth? Now, how am I going to do that? How am I going to live in that spiritually harsh environment when I leave my home and close that door and enter into the door of work? How's that going to happen? 
Oh, see, see, it's very practical. And that's why this book begins on earth. See, and it begins with real cities that existed and real churches. And we're going to look at the church at Philadelphia, the other Philadelphia. Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 through 13. We're going to be listening to how Jesus assures this church, how he encourages this church, and then we're going to overhear an invitation that Jesus makes even to us here today. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name, and I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars." I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, Revelation 3, 7 to 13. Assurance, Jesus gives. Encouragement, Jesus gives. An invitation, Jesus gives. Let's track along those words here this morning as we get to know the church and the believers in it. Assurance, Jesus assures this church that he holds the key to the door of the kingdom. Now, that's from verse 7 there, the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, who holds the key of David. Now, why is it important for Jesus to communicate to this church the kind of assurance, and why does he say who holds the key of David? What is all of that about? Well, we've got to learn a little bit about, you know, we're in the 21st century, and here is our culture, in, in 21st century America, we kind of got to peel back the time and kind of get into the lives of the uh, late 1st century, 2nd century believers to try to figure this out. And so they lived in the city of Philadelphia. And the city of Philadelphia was originally founded by a king around the year 190 B.C. The king loved his brother so much that he decided to, to honor his brother by naming a city based on his love for his, his brother. And, and so, uh, Phil, Phil, uh, Phil, love, Adelphos, brother, I, I love my brother. 
The city of I love my brother. We're not sure what this king's last name was. We know it wasn't Boltinghouse uh, because my brothers would never name a city after me, a gerbil, but uh, not a city. Um, but nonetheless, this king loved his brother, and uh, it was a flourishing city. The city of Philadelphia was, uh, was called a missionary city because uh, Philadelphia, well, just as St. Louis was called the gateway to the west, Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east, meaning people traveled through this particular city to settle that part of what is now modern-day Turkey. And the role of Philadelphia was to help spread uh, Greek and Roman culture and, and Greek and, and, and Roman uh, uh, language and just kind of the Greek and Roman way of life. And they very successfully did so. so that's why in the first century, I mean, it was... It, Everybody spoke Greek, and so they were known as a missionary city, a missionary city. The negative side of this city was that uh, it was located near a fault line. And so that in the year A.D. 17, right about the time Jesus was 20 years of age, a devastating earthquake leveled the city of Philadelphia. That's why I don't have really too many pictures of archaeological ruins and remains because the city was just leveled. And the problem was that the city continued to suffer setbacks in reconstruction because of the aftershocks, so much so that the citizens wouldn't live inside the city. They would go work inside the city, but at night they would leave the city, which is like, you know, okay, well, we do that. Well, yeah, but no, they didn't have cars and things like that. And the city was a form of security for them. And so the city was so insecure, they, they just left. And they, they kind of camped out in the countryside and then went in and did commerce and stuff inside the city because they didn't want to be buried under, under rubble in case there was another earthquake at night. So it was a very you know, a shaky, kind of unsettling, insecure situation. Uh, the Roman government forgave taxation so that this city could rebuild, and in appreciation, they gave the city, here it is, pay attention, a new name. A new name. They called it New Caesar, out of appreciation to their emperor. But the townies still called it Philadelphia. They weren't going to change. This generosity by one Roman emperor was later betrayed by another Roman emperor uh, at the time of this writing. Apparently, the winemakers in Italy were uh, complaining to Caesar that, uh, you know, they weren't making enough money in Italy for producing their wine. So Caesar told Philadelphia, which was a, quite a thriving place for grapevines and winemaking because of the volcanic soil, Caesar said, uh, okay, I mean, with one stroke of his pen, he said, okay, cut down half your grapevines. And it literally, it almost brought the city to its knees. They, they could not believe that this, that this one emperor who had so helped the city, that that help was betrayed by another emperor that almost devastated the city. They were a shaken city that was betrayed. 
Now, what happened in the city of Philadelphia is a lot like what these Christians were experiencing here, and they felt betrayed. They felt shut out. They felt pressured, and what they needed was assurance. Assurance that God was real, and assurance that, that they were, in fact, a part of the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus begins with, these are the words of him who is holy and true. And then he uses this phrase, who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now, we listen to that and we say, okay, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, that means that the Christians who were in Philadelphia were of Hebrew ethnicity. That's what that means. Because this verse is a direct reference to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 20 and 22. Let's look at this verse up here. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim. Eliakim was the chief of staff to King Hezekiah, one of the Old Testament kings. Chief of staff. I will clothe him, that's Eliakim. Stay with me now. If I'm going to lose you in this message, it's going to be right now. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Keep going. Here it is. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Let's just keep that verse up there right now because that's what John's referring to. So these Christians would read this, and, and when Jesus refers to himself and going back to Isaiah, they're thinking Eliakim. Eliakim was chief of staff to the king, meaning he controlled who got to enter the throne room and who didn't. Hey, guess what? The president of the United States doesn't take walk-ins. So he has a chief of staff who manages the calendar and who manages who gets to go in and come out of the Oval Office. So who has the power then? <laughs> See, the king or the one who guards the door to the king? And what Jesus is saying here is, Christians in Philadelphia, I know you're oppressed. I know you have felt betrayed. But I want, I want to assure you that I am the one, I am the one who controls who enters and who does not enter the throne room of God. That's me and no one else. I am the holy one. You see that there? Why would he say holy one? Because when a, a Hebrew would read the word holy, would know the Old Testament talks about Yahweh is holy. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. And he is the true one, meaning he is loyal. He will not betray his people. As Caesar betrayed the citizens of Philadelphia, I will never, ever betray you. You are my people. I hold the key of David. When I open that door, no one can close it. You can trust me. Now, why would, the question is, why would they need that kind of assurance? And here's why. They would need that kind of assurance because they were a double minority in their culture. A double minority. I, have n I, I can't even begin to fathom what it feels like to be a double minority. You say, what do you mean, Randy? Well, here's what I mean. Philadelphia was a Greek and Roman city, but in Philadelphia was a synagogue and, uh, w with people of Hebrew ethnicity. They were a minority. 
And so they lived in the synagogue here, and some of those uh, uh, Jewish folks in the synagogue, we don't know how they came to Christ. Uh, It must have been through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who evangelized all throughout Asia Minor. But some of those Hebrew-speaking believers, they became Christians. And as a result then, they were shunned from their own ethnic family group. And so you see, they, they were a double minority. Not only were they a racial minority, but within their own racial ethnic group, they were shunned. And now what are you going to do? Now where are you going to go? You, you're not going to go to the Romans because they don't care. And you're shunned from your community. See, I don't know what that's about because I'm... See, I'm a racial majority, and I belong to a superpower country. See, I've really got to think and feel to try to connect with what that's like. And Jesus says, listen, you may be shut out, and you may be shunned, but I want you to know that my door is open to you, and you need to trust that my door is the door that counts because we live in a culture of doors, And we live in a culture where people are vying for your attention. Hey, you, Steve. Hey, you, Mary. Hey, you, John. Come on. Come on up through our door. You come through our door. And they want you to think that if you're not in their door, then you don't have any satisfaction in life whatsoever. But here's what you find out. Some of you have found this out. You could get up here and you could talk about how, well, you have gone through their doors and you're not satisfied at all. See, you were betrayed. And Jesus says, I will never betray you. You come through my door. It's the only door that counts. And it is the only door that satisfies forever. And you all who belong to the kingdom, you know that. You know that you have tasted Christ. And you've walked through his door. And you said, there's nothing like it. And Jesus is just assuring these believers in a very difficult crisis-like situation, hey, just stay true, stay firm, hold on. I'm the true one. I'm the holy one. My door is open. I control the key. You're not being defrauded here by me. You can trust me. See, you can trust me. And that's a good word. That's a good word. Jesus assures them that his door is open. But he doesn't doesn't only assure them that his door is open and that it's the most important door and it's the only one that counts. Jesus not only assures them, but and this is the beautiful part of this text, he encourages them. He encourages them with the gift of the open door. Oh, wow. I know your deeds. I have, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'm placing, I I am not only your open door, but I'm going to place before you an open door. I'm going to give you the gift of the open door. And again, that's a word picture. And it's kind of a different 
way of thinking about what the open door is because when the Bible sometimes talks about an open door, sometimes it refers to an open door as an opportunity, an opportunity that God is placing in front of people to have him work in their lives. And I like how one scholar, John Stott, talks about this. Remember what I said about Philadelphia as the missionary city? What the city had been for Greek culture, it was now going to be for the Christian gospel. The Philadelphian church seems to have had the chance to spread far and wide the good news of God's grace and kingdom. The door was open. No one could shut it. Let them pass through. There's the gift of the open door that Jesus is giving this church so that by their ministry and by serving and worshiping and loving, lives are going to be changed due to the power of Christ through them. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. You see that phrase? That God may open a door for our message. See, the Apostle Paul understood that in some mysterious way, spiritual work always requires spiritual strength. And we come here and we gather on Sunday and we listen to teaching and music and you go in your small groups and you pray and you study or we go on trips or we go to Salt and Light or we go to Restoration or we go to the Dominican Republic. But you understand, we, we, we could not do these things in our strength alone. You know that. And there's a mystery that Paul is telling us that in order for us to contagiously influence our world for Christ, the power of Christ has got to be flowing. Because you know what? You can hear better talkers on TV. And you can hear better music on the radio. I mean, if all it is is just human effort, then there's not going to be any change. But you know what I'm talking about because some of you are here and two years ago you wouldn't be caught dead in a place like this. What, what changed? God went before you and God has done a work in your heart and he's changed your heart. And, and sometimes he's let some of you experience going through other doors and, and you get to the other side and you realize, well, that, that wasn't as satisfying as I thought. And part of that is God's work. Some of you God has allowed to go through the door of painful suffering. Some of you... God has allowed to go through a painful door of death. He's changed your heart. I just had prayer with someone after first service who's going to have surgery for cancer this Friday. And in some mysterious way, God is allowing this to happen. I, I don't know why, but I pray. I pray that the disease would be killed, and I pray that God would use this circumstance so that not only this person would see his strength, but others in their family would see. You see, if, if God doesn't go before, and if God doesn't unlock doors, we're never gonna get through them. And that's what we're seeing. And, and not only in lives, but in communities, in work cultures, in countries. And this is why it's so important that this church hold on and be faithful. Verses 8 and 10. You have kept my word 
and you have not denied my name. You have kept my command to endure patiently. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're trusting in me and I'm the faithful one, I'm the holy one, I'm the true one, I'm not gonna betray you and I've been monitoring your situation and I want you to know that in a very short amount of time, I'm gonna blow off the lid and this community that you're living in is gonna be reached and, and, and the door is gonna be open and no one's gonna be able to close it and it's because my power at work through your littleness, your littleness, I know you have little strength. I know you have little strength. I don't see too many church growth seminars on how to have little strength. <laughs> I, I've never attended one. We live in a culture that says how to have big strength and how to be great and how to be humble about being great. And it's like, Jesus says, I know you have little strength, but you've kept my word and you haven't denied my name. And that, that takes patient endurance. It takes patient endurance for a university professor to work in an environment of relativism and pluralism and say, no, I, I really do believe that Jesus is, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. and I really do believe that he bodily rose from the dead. And it takes patient endurance to be ethical in business. It takes patient endurance to be sexually pure in a sex in the city culture. It takes patient endurance. And to those who patiently endure, to those who refuse to deny the name of Christ, to those who keep his word. Jesus says, I'm gonna keep you and I'm gonna give you the gift of the open door. Is there a greater gift that a local congregation could receive than the gift of the open door? Oh, I pray for that. I pray that we will keep God's word, that we will never deny his name and that we will keep his command to endure patiently. Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church. Nothing negative. In fact, Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only churches that Jesus has absolutely nothing critical to say about, period. None whatsoever. He just, he just assures these churches and he encourages them and they're the ones who are suffering and they're the ones who are feeling weakened by their circumstance. But Jesus says, you hold on. You are just, all I want you to do is hold on to what you have. I mean, you're on the front line. I mean, you live next door to Satan, you know? They don't build condos on the front line. No, you hold on. You hold on. And, and you know what? Jesus makes seven promises to this church. See, to no other church does he make. And remember, seven is a, Comprehensive, universal, symbolic number, you know. He makes seven promises. Let's review them up here. Jesus says, I will make your enemies fall to their feet. I will make them confess that I've loved you. Jesus says, look, when I go before you and I unlock doors, then those who were criticizing you are gonna be worshiping with you because that's my strength and that's my power. 
I will keep you through the hour of trial. No, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna pull you out of the fire. You're gonna go through the fire. And that's how my glory is gonna be revealed. I will make you a pillar. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And never again will you have to leave it. The citizens of Philadelphia had to escape the city at night to, out of insecurity. Not here. You're going to be a t- pillar and you're never going to need to leave it because it's going to be secure. And then, G- and then Jesus says the same thing three times. That's for emphasis. I'm going to write on you God's name. The name of God's city. My own name, and, and uh, you, you know, okay, what's the name, what's the name? No, 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 no. To have the name of God, to have the name of God's city, to have Jesus' own name is to have Jesus. You have Jesus, and that's all you need. That's all you need. You hold on. Our future, all these promises, seven promises, our future depends on Christ's promises, on Christ's promises, Christianity is not about my ability to keep the commands. It's about Jesus' ability to keep his promises. No wonder they were encouraged. Assurance, encouragement. And then an invitation. And here's where I want to just talk to us here. Because this door, this door remains open. It remains open because Jesus is inviting you all to come to him today. He is the door. Have you done that? I mean, do you need to go through any other door before you get it that his is the only one that satisfies? Come on. And can you be encouraged that he can use you so that others can walk through the open door too? I wish you'd come through this door this morning. I wish you'd come through Jesus. What does that look like? That looks like saying in your heart, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want you to be my leader. I trust you to run my life better than I trust me to run my life. I want you to be in charge. You have sovereign control and sovereign authority, and I'm going to just do what you say, Jesus. That's what that means. See, that's called faith. That's called trusting Jesus instead of tr- and, and And I'm not talking about faith like, well, I believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. Well, I do, but I mean, okay, I'm talking about, okay, how's that going to change my life? See, I'm going to be loyal to him. I'm going to depend upon him. And I'm going to change the way I think about him. That's called repentance, where I change my mind. Jesus knows best how to run my life. And then I'm going to be like Courtney, and I'm I'm not going to shy away. I'm going to stop being silent, and I'm I'm going to be salt and light for Jesus. Lord, I trust you in my heart. That's going to affect my mind. And I'm going to let people know with my mouth. And then... I'm going to take the loyalty oath and you go through that door here and you pick up a towel. And this towel is for after you get out of the baptistry. There's no magic in the water. Baptism is the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Baptism is the ceremonial loyalty oath. I believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Will you walk through that door this morning? Will you do that? We have robes. You can change into robes and you walk out in your dry clothes, but you'll be changed from the inside out. And that's what it is. And you've been coming here. Some of you have been coming here for a long time. And it's time to make Jesus the king of your life. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that.